don't believe, I always think that all this bullshit about to provoke you a little bit more, this is superstitious logic. It's pure ideology. You know this ecological bullshit like... Uh... Hello, welcome to the end of the world. This is Anthropocene's episode 67. And today we are uh, revisiting a favorite of the show. Uh, what we're calling, what would we call it? Second Reformed? I'm calling it First Reform to Michael's Back. Yeah, that. Um, so talking about First Reformed again from uh, 2000 and something, 2017 or 2018. Yeah. Um, and we, we did this in our very first actual episode, like after our kind of introductory episode. And it's a film that we like a lot. It's kind of the impetus for starting the podcast. So we thought it'd be a good time to go back and revisit it uh, with fresh eyes um for me it was uh trying to watch it i don't know not more deeply but kind of you know you you watch a movie once or twice and you decide you really like it and then a few years later you maybe you go back and you don't like it as much or you find issues with it that you didn't notice before so i was kind of watching it sort of uh, with a paranoid kind of approach to it. Turns out it, it still rolls. I still like it a lot. So wasn't it? Yeah, I, th- I think a lot of that uh, that feeling you're talking about of, of returning to a movie and, and maybe not liking it, you kind of get on a second viewing, on a return viewing, you get a sense of to what degree a movie exists within a particular sort of political moment. And... <clears throat> And, and how caught up are you in that political moment uh, in order for you to be caught up in a particular movie? Um, and so if you, if you revisit a film and you find that it's not as good and maybe you were caught up in something, it's like, oh, well, maybe that movie doesn't really transcend a very particular set of circumstances. Um, I think this one does. Um, and I'm saying, I mean, it's only been what is it not even four years since the movie was released and what like maybe not even two years since we last talked about it. But, um, so far I think it stands up. Yeah, definitely. Um, and a part of that, and this is kind of what we, we started to talk about this before we started recording, but, uh, Schrader kind of paying a, a very close attention to the, the cinematic elements of the film and we both watched the uh, commentary or at least heard his commentary um, that I guess is on the Criterion release of it or the Blu-ray release. It's, it, it's just on the, I don't think there is a Criterion release. Yeah, In I fact, I'm pretty sure there's not. That would be awesome if there were. Uh, but um, the, the, the home release of it, there's the, yeah, the just the, I've got the, the Blu-ray and it's on the, on the Blu-ray yeah. uh, and it's really cool to hear a it's sort of like a film nerds commentary uh, it's like it's like schrader really knows his audience he knows the kinds of things someone listening to a dvd commentary wants to know about uh, and so there's a lot of as would be expected from the guy who you know was a critic before he became a filmmaker and wrote the book transcendental style and film there's a lot of sort of walking the viewer through what the you know what he the director is thinking and why shots look the way they look and why cuts come when they come um 
he kept uh, he kept repeating the phrase. Uh, he, he'd say something like, "What I'm up to here is, you know, X Y Z," and and that was really I really enjoyed it. I, you know, I I listen to DVD commentaries sometimes, not as much as I used to, but this one was was pretty enjoyable. Yeah, and it um, it's that uh, sorry, I'm trying to think of what the phrase is, uh, but. That, that phrase he keeps repeating of, of what I'm up to, I, that's really great because it kind of gets into this idea of how m- most people approach any kind of work of art, uh, what is often called uh, hermeneutics of suspicion, where you, you go in and you're, you're not really there to experience it. You're there kind of like a detective trying mm-hmm. to pick up clues and figure out what's really going on. Um, and with uh, with the commentary, you kind of get him unpacking a lot of that for you. And it, what kind of struck me was how frank he is about a lot of it of here's what I was doing. And even more so of him just straight up being like, I got this from this other film. I got this from Winter Light or I got this from uh, Diary of a Country Priest or this is from yeah. Taxi Driver, my own film. <laughs> yeah, just like no bones about it. I still there's there, I can't remember what the film was uh, he attributes the credit sequence to but like the font of the credits he's like oh this is from that film um, there might have been a- yeah and and I really like that I like the emphatic way with which he cites his references and the emphatic way he sort of details um camera movements or lack of camera movements as the case often is um, in, in a way to sort of subvert that trope of, of the, the elusive artist, you know, sort of saying, oh, well, it's, you know, it's up to you. What do you see? What do you think? Um, but at the same time, it, you know, you can still ask the question, even if Schrader says what he says on the commentary, does that matter? Um, are we supposed to assume that everyone who sees this film is going to listen to the director commentary? And if they're not, and if there's something that exists within, you know, the formal constraints of the film, uh, that is, um, even if it's not at odds, if it's communicated in a way that viewers perceive as at odds with what he says, then does it matter that he said it? And you, and you were getting to into issues of like the relationship of an author to to her his work. Um, anyway, it, it makes those me, are things I thought about as I listened to the commentary. Oh no, and it's kind of funny that that this came up because when we were going to record last time, we ended up kind of pushing it back a couple of days to to let you all behind the scenes for a minute. <laughs> but I have been listening to a podcast. Uh, it's made by Jacobins called Michael and Us. And it, it's a, sort of like looking at reevaluating films from a kind of left wing perspective. And it's a couple of Canadian guys that, that host it. Um, and they were talking about the man who shot Liberty Valance, the hmm. John Ford movie, which I love. Like, I, I think it's just a great kind of all-time American film. You have John Wayne and Jimmy Stewart. Um, and in in that, they were talking about how John Ford is saying a lot of things about America and its mythology and its history, 
but then he's also saying a bunch of things that maybe he didn't mean to say, but are as important, if not more important, kind of like with the searchers and a lot of his movies. Um, mm-hmm. And they referenced an interview. One of the, one of the hosts had listened to with John Ford, where he had uh, was asked about, you know, did you mean to imply this with the ending of the man who shot Liberty Valance or something like that? And John Ford was just kind of like, well, I don't, you know, I don't really know. I think, you know, after you make a movie over time, interpretations change. And he was basically just doing the thing that some artists do where he's like, well, it is what it is. And if you see that, then maybe it's there. Um, and it made me think of forever ago when I was in a uh, literature class at the University of Kentucky. Uh, the professor kind of knew Bobby Ann Mason, who worked at the university in some capacity and uh had her come in to talk about her story Shiloh which is this you know kind of landmark American short story of the late 20th century and uh, people were asking about this ambiguous ending of the short story and saying well did this character kill herself we all think that she killed I didn't think this I was kind of in the corner sulking like oh y'all are stupid but they're like we think this character killed herself and uh, Bobby Mason's just like I never thought of that She's like, she's like, no, I don't, I don't think she did. But if you, if you say so, then maybe. And it, it led me to this question that I was going to ask you. Where it's like, not. This is probably the wrong word, but like, do you have to be kind of a dumbass to be a good artist? Like, can is it the case that if you were too in your head and too sort of, if you know too much about how the sausage is made, does it keep you from making good sausage? I guess that's maybe a stupid way of putting it. Um, no, I know exactly what you mean. Um, I, I think I, I want to say I, I think I read an interview with uh, with David Foster Wallace one time where he's sort of blaming the kind of inward turn of postmodern fiction on the fact that uh, fiction writers all of a sudden in the late 20th century, uh, or really, really mid to late 20th century, start to be uh, sort of uh, critics. Uh, you know, there's a, a blurred line between critics and artists, uh, which I think, you know, we just said that about Paul Schrader. Um, but the idea that the artists, the creative types, are also ingesting huge amounts of criticism and are so aware like hyper aware of what's what they're writing is is reg the way it's registering in the mind of the critic um he uh, wallace was sort of saying maybe stilts the creative process so so maybe there is something to that so maybe um you know a a sort of hyper cerebral approach or an academic approach uh, does sort of stunt uh, the imagination in some way. I don't know. Yeah, but with with Schrader, at least, it seems like he was able to exploit that to his own ends and so take all these things that are, you know, these different influences and instead of making what we see now with a lot of films, which is just like an amalgamation, some like weird Frankenstein of just a bunch of different references that don't really mean anything. These kind of floating signifiers. He was able to take the sort of stylistics and turn it into something original and that, you know, that had something to say. 
Right. It's not just an homage. It's not like a Tarantino or like an earlier Tarantino sort of homage. Like, look at how awesome movies are. It's it's using um, different styles and techniques of, of earlier movies to communicate in a, you know, in a 21st century way, not to um, not to uh, escape meaning, but to create it referentially, um, which, which, you know, there's a very big difference there. But while we're, while we're on this topic of kind of the, the author's relationship to the art or to the work. Um, so I said, I, I sometimes listen to, uh, DVD commentaries. I listened. So, uh, what's the giant bookstore in Nashville? McKay's mm-hmm. Jensen. And I went to McKay's. I found this, uh, criterion movie that I've been looking for, for some time uh, for, for a, reasonable price the three penny opera by gw pabst uh it's from 1931 um i i'm interested in in Bertolt brecht for whatever reason um, and i was listening to the audio commentary by let me see i've got the disc here by uh david bathrick and eric Rinchler. these are scholars from like harvard and cornell i think Anyway, I was just sort of casually listening to this in the background and I heard them say something and I was like, it was like the first time I'd heard anyone talking about the question that, that we keep repeating on this podcast is, which is, uh, you know, can a technological medium like film, um, effectively critique a culture that is largely defined by its technology? Or is that just like an inherently hypocritical um, position? So anyway, these two scholars were talking and they referred to a speech or an essay by Walter Benjamin. I always want to say Benjamin. Um, And it's called The Author as Producer. And I looked it up and there's just a few little quotes I want to read and then we can sort of bring it back to um, try to make connections to first reformed. So um, this article says the, the place of the intellectual in the class struggle can only be determined or better still chosen on the basis of his position within the production process. Um, Breck, has coined the phrase functional transformation to describe the transformation of forms and instruments of production by progressive intelligentsia and intelligentsia interested in liberating the means of production and hence active in the class struggle. He was the first to address to the intellectuals the far-reaching demand that they should not supply the production apparatus without, at the same time, within the limits of the possible, changing that apparatus in the direction of socialism. Another quote says, a question which is somewhat more modest, which goes less far, but which it seems to me stands a better chance of being answered. Instead of asking what is the position of a work vis-a-vis the production relations of its time, does it underwrite these relations? Is it reactionary or does it aspire to overthrow them? Is it revolutionary? Instead of this question, or at any rate before this question, I should like to propose a different one. I should like to ask what is its position within them? 
This question concerns the function of a work within the literary production relations of its time. In other words, it is directly concerned with literary technique. Anyway, um, it seems like what he what he's getting at there is that you cannot. Um, the only way to be truly revolutionary in a film or in any work of art is to have the um, the sort of techniques you use not just uh, be about the revolutionary cause in some abstract way. Um, it also has the technique has to also implicate the means by which you are communicating in that production process as complicit in it. So it has to be sort of uh, self-critical. And the challenge then, of course, is how to communicate. You know, how do you do that? Um, and the only thing I could really think of uh, or, or what made me think of it in relation to First Reformed is the the four by three, the sort of the sort of connection between the theme uh, or the themes of austerity in the film and the kind of formal austerity of the four by three. And as Schrader talks about the sort of muted uh, color palette of the film. And, and as I suspected, he mentions in the, in the commentary that he wanted to have it black and white. He just, it just wasn't, it was like uh, against the contract for it to be black and white. Um, so he wants to have it in black and white. He wants it in this four by three format as a sort of, um, austere measure that connects to the themes of austerity and sacrifice and, um, you know, a sort of, uh, problematization of overconsumption, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, that's the first thing I've seen where someone is actually talking about that big question. And it's also, um, He's talking about like the the austerity of, of the filmmaking in a lot of ways. Um, he, something he talked about a lot, Paul Schrader, uh, is the the sort of austerity of, of the camera movement. And he talks about how they're you know the he doesn't really use zoom or pan or tilt or anything. He just sort of like films it, and he makes a point in the commentary to bring up, oh, well, this is one of the the times at which I did this with the camera, or like I shot it from a a different angle or something like that. Um, and, you know, makes kind of a point to, to say, you know, I, I made that rule and then now I can break that rule, that sort of thing. And, and that's, I think that's a good way of, of thinking about, or formally thinking about the film because you have um, a pretty stark, very kind of uh, un, unmoving in the sense that the camera's not moving a lot up. It's probably a better way to say that kind of mostly sort of stationary sort of viewpoint. Um, Static. Yeah, there you go. Uh, and it's really only broken, if you think about the kind of funky parts of the movie, there's the magical mystery tour and then the scene at the end. Um, those are the times when you sort of, especially with the magical mystery tour, where you kind of break out of that in a, in a very big way. And it makes it so much stranger and more effective and it has that kind of, you know, it's almost like a alienation effect going on when you watch those scenes. Yeah, he he Schrader creates a sense of what is normal and acceptable 
by using these uh, very static camera. He, he says he sets up most scenes to where you see the scene and then Toller walks into the scene and then exits the frame before they cut. Um, and it's, it's, um, it's a technique to slow the pace down so that when he breaks that rule, like you're saying, it feels all the more exotic and, um, dynamic because you, you think about it like, um, the magical mystery tour or the, the final scene in a more frenetic kind of mainstream thing. Like if that, if those shots were in like a Batman, Christopher Nolan, Batman movie, they're just sort of part and parcel. The, the spinning camera is like all over those movies. Like, um, and so there's no, there's no transcendence. There's no, uh, those scenes don't stand out unless they are contrasted with the austere static, um, you know, categorically not frenetic shots. Uh, so yeah, he, he creates the rules in order to break them. Um, and, and he sort of intentionally bores us, uh, in, in a way so that the, the dynamic moments will be even more dynamic. Yeah. It, it's kind of the, uh, it's the opposite of, well, yeah, well, maybe not the opposite, but it, it, it makes me think of the uh, the Bourne movies, um, the fight scenes that are like hyperkinetic to the point where I, I can't really watch them. They just kind of make me dizzy. Um, yeah. And just because of the shaky cam stuff, just I, I can't do it. Um, but it, it's sort of kind of like an inverse of that, I guess, where that happens. It's not like the whole movie looks like that, but when you do it, it's like now we're in action mode. Yeah, and it's yeah, it is it is sort of the opposite because maybe those movies have this um, maybe their rule that they're creating or the standard is like this frenetic, fast paced thing, and then maybe the moments of contemplation feel all the more contemplative because because the the camera is still. Although I can't really think of many <laughs> moments in those movies, which I just recently rewatched. Uh, strangely enough, um, I can't think of many moments when the camera is still. I can't. There's not a whole lot of contemplative uh, scenes in those movies. Yeah, I haven't. I think I've seen two of them, and that's been years. That's why okay. you just watch them. Is there is there a reason for that? Jensen and I were sort of going through uh, the American action like like contemporary american action films um we did all of the mission impossibles we did all of the born movies and we did the first two of the new james bond like the the daniel craig bonds and uh then we just got sick of it (laughs) (laughs) um but yeah i mean that's we got farther than i thought we would yeah, that's uh, that's that's some some project that you hastily abandoned. <laughs> Didn't even get to. Uh, well, I guess that's not contemporary, but I was thinking cl- cliffhanger. 
Oh my god, I watch Cliffhanger like every six weeks or something on VHS. That movie kicks ass. I'm telling you, man, we need to do that. It there's 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 stuff going on in Cliffhanger. It's an allegory of the artist. <laughs> Cliffhanger. I'll keep it in mind. I, um, mean, I, I just it, it's funny. It's this is like the greatness of American culture is I don't remember Cliffhanger as much as I remember the Ace Ventura spoof of cliffhanger at the beginning of the yeah. sequel yep i definitely saw that one first uh to where i saw cliffhanger and i was like oh it's just like ace ventura too i think i i saw i think i had the reference for cliffhanger even at that young age because we were a big like video store family and i'm pretty sure i had seen cliffhanger i remember i had a, a buddy who I played baseball with. And so we were always going on, you know, sort of local short, short trips. Um, and his mom had a big van. Like one, I don't, I forget the, the type of van it was, but it had the, the TV and the VCR in the back and cliffhanger was in that van. And I definitely, definitely watched cliffhanger there for the first time. That's a, that's I also I also remember th- this was later this was in high school uh that same van though we were on a trip back we were on our way back from Memphis and uh this my my friend's mom had rented just like a, a big pile of movies and she didn't really discern she just like rented movies that uh, that were new at the time so this would have been like 2002 or 3 and I remember uh, adaptation by Spike Jones wow. was was in the pile, and I was like, "What is this?" And I put it in, and it's just like me and three three dudes in the back of this guy's van on the way home from Memphis, getting our minds just blown to pieces by this like super cerebral, uh, you know, piece of art, and they just like fell asleep right off the bat and i was just like mesmerized by this movie i also remember that i wasn't in the van at this time but she uh, my friend's mom had rent, rented monsters ball oh, nice. <laughs> and and that scene with you know the sex scene with halle berry and uh what's his name billy bob thornton which is like really explicit and especially like from an a purely audio perspective very explicit <laughs> just hearing everyone talk about you know, the awkward moment when that sex scene came on and our friend's mom is driving the van. <laughs> oh, it was great. Anyway, tales from just Justin like... Jones van. God. And that's where your obsession with, with movies came from. <laughs> I think it predates it. No, I think it started in the van with monsters ball. Yeah. yeah in 2003. You know, those hot times, man. Iraq war just started. Um, well, b- speaking of the austerity we're, we're sort of talking about with, with First Reformed, one aspect of it that I hadn't really thought about before is so, – so Schrader talks about his techniques that we've been talking about as a sort of withholding technique. You know, he, he understands that his audience is used to a more like a quicker pace and a more frenetic style. And so he withholds and he makes, you know, he shoots it in a static way. Um, 
one aspect of this I hadn't thought about is the austerity of Ethan Hawke as a performer, as an actor. So Ethan Hawke is a fairly, if, if you've ever seen him like give an interview or something, a fairly exuberant presence. Like he's always excited and like sort of bright eyed and just sort of excited to be there and kind of all over the place. Um, and so if you kind of have this knowledge of, of Ethan Hawke's personality and see him uh, and the way he's playing Ernst Toller as this very subdued, very solemn character, um, that itself becomes an aspect of that withholding technique because we know who Ethan Hawke is and we see, you know, he's in this black, uh, you know, uh, pastor regalia, uh, just sort of solemnly walking among the pews and, uh, and he's sick. Um, all these things are sort of feeding that, that technique trader using of withholding because we know who Ethan Hawke is. Yeah. And even the, uh, the the depiction of, of illness and how subdued that is where I don't know I feel like you could if you really wanted to play up that angle and and like add this kind of pain of stomach cancer on top of this existential anguish that you could have this big like scene scenery chewing performance by Ethan Hawke but instead it goes in the opposite direction and it's completely like subdued to the point of like being ignored right and that, that's a big part of his characterization uh, is just kind of the ignoring this terrible thing that's going on in his body um but you could have just as easily blown it out in the other direction and had it be like puking blood and like retching all the time you know you, you, I, i'm glad they didn't do that <laughs> Yeah. Another another uh, place in the film where that sort of dynamic is relevant and could have gone a different way. And Schrader talks about this in the commentary is when um, uh, Cedric Kyle's what's his name? Cedric the Entertainer. No, the, the uh, character's Reverend, name. Um, damn. That's going to drive me crazy. I'll tell you just a second. Jeffers. Yes, Reverend Jeffers. Um, when he is conf- <clears throat> confronting Toller about his drinking problem, um, Schrader was saying that in the script, Toller just sort of stoically nods his head and just sort of casually denies the drinking and just sort of is like, okay, whatever, um, kind of how you would expect him based on how he interacts with the doctor. But um, Ethan Hawke just sort of ad-libbed it and started crying. And Schrader was like, yes, this is, that's right. Um, this, is, this is a moment that needs, where we need to break that rule. Uh, I didn't know it until you did that, but yes, we need to do that. Um, but that's another example of that sort of, uh, that sort of fine balance between the the austerity as as the normal that Schrader has created and then the um, the breaking of that rule for very specific thematic purposes. 
Yeah, and that's... I don't know. I just it was going to talk about how much I love that scene. Um, in all the scenes after Toller has kind of made this decision to try to blow up the uh, reconsecration ceremony, and the how dire he becomes in those scenes. There's that, and then where he's like, "I can be there. I can do it." And then uh, when he's telling Mary not to come, they, they kind of those two scenes kind of go hand in hand. Um, yeah, and it's the first yeah. time you see him with like any kind of drive. And it's to to complete this thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, what what you just said made me think of another thing. I don't I don't think I noticed the first time we watched it um, is that Toller's advice to Michael in that early scene where they're you know he's counseling him. His advice to Michael is the exact advice that he needs himself. So like he has the answer to his own problems. He can see it as true um, only when he's sort of projecting it onto Michael. I mean, I I think it was true. You know, what he said um, was, was good advice, I think to Michael, but it was also true for his own problems. Uh, but he's talking about how, you know, despair is unavoidable and the, the play between hope and, uh, you know, courage and despair is, is kind of life itself. Um, and, and, you know, rationalism is not the answer and it's courage. And it, anyway, all these things he's saying to Michael are, you know, aligned precisely with what he needs to do and, and arguably what he uh, comes into at the, in that final scene when he drops the Drano and embraces Mary finally. Yeah. I, I just was thinking in, in rewatching it, um, I, the, the kind of, uh, tit ah tit between, uh, Toller and, and, uh, and a guy whose name I just forgot, Michael. Um, that's one of my favorite scenes in the movie, right? And Toller's all, excited about it right he's exhilarated from this you know being challenged and having to sort of defend faith and in talks about how it's like uh, wrestling with the angel and that sort of thing mm-hmm. um, and I don't know I don't know if we talked about this in the when we talked about the movie the first time what we talk about when we talk about first reform uh, but um, the a really kind of genius part of the writing is in in the way that the question can god forgive us is stated and i was just thinking about it and it's it's kind of a basic concept but just thinking about the wording it's not will god forgive us or should god forgive us but it's can god forgive us um i think it's i think it's both is it both yeah i think i think at the beginning michael says can god forgive us well, now I can't remember, but I think I think the sign says something different than what Michael says, or maybe when when he repeats it, when Toller repeats it to Balk, it's different. But I think it's stated in two different ways. Okay, see it, on the. But sign, either way, your your point, you know, is still valid because it is stated in a in a strange way at least once. 
Yeah, so on the sign that Toller puts up, it's, will God forgive us? Okay. But when Michael's talking to him, it's, can God forgive us? I, I believe. Um, and it, that just made me think of, because I, I went and watched uh, Winterlight, because First Reformed is basically just a kind of a contemporary American remake of, of that in a, in a lot of ways, not a direct remake, but it's taking a lot of the cues from that movie, um, setting and a lot of things. And in that film, it, it's equally kind of bleak um, and ends with this kind of, uh, you know, that, that final sermon to the empty church. <laughs> and it, it has that kind of feeling of kind of probing out there and hoping to, to find God, but not being sure and just like doing it anyway, just to see what happens. Um, and I got that same kind of, of feeling from the question being phrased like that, which is, can God forgive us? The fact that it, for the sign, it changes to will God forgive us is interesting because it shows then that's sort of less of a, less of a kind of questioning of even the existence of a God, but, or some sort of higher power that even can begin to forgive us, but starts from that as a foundation and changes it to, will we be forgiven for the, so what we're doing is evil. Will we be forgiven for it? I don't know. It's an interesting kind of, uh, uh, diction choice that I, that I got into on this rewatching. Yeah, did you did you hear what uh, Schrader had to say? He told a, a short little story about, I think it was someone in a, a theological uh, seminary asking him that question. Uh, someone asked Paul Schrader, "Will God forgive us?" And Schrader's perfect response was, "Of course He will. Why do you think we invented Him?" <laughs> <laughs> He, he said, he sort of regretted saying it that way. He said it was a little too on the nose, a little too blatant. But, uh, yeah, he said it. That, it was just funny coming from Schrader, who's like lifelong church guy. Uh, and even now it's like. I, I, I think he's very, I think he's very um, well-versed in church. I do not think he identifies as like a Christian or anything, though. I think he grew up in the church. I, I I remember when the that scene came on with the youth group. He was sort of saying in his commentary that uh, he's very familiar with uh, youth groups and he thinks they are under studied. He thinks they're they're more powerful than people give them credit for in terms of you know shaping ideologies and things. Man, I remember. Maybe I brought this up before, but like, I, you know, I didn't go to church growing up, didn't have a very religious family, but I had a lot of friends who did come from religious families and they would go to youth group every Sunday. And it was, it was weird. It was like, it was weird in the sense that it was like this special little thing that they were involved with, with these other people my age. And it felt like I was very much like on the outside and like missing out on something because they would do like fun stuff in the youth group and they would have like lock-ins and you weren't really allowed to go if you didn't go to the church and all this sort of stuff and there were a couple times growing up where i was like i could go to church <laughs> if i could go, if i go to the lock-ins that'd be kind of cool um oh I've, I've been to a lock-in or two pretty pretty fun 
Yeah, see, I, and that's by design, right? You want to associate the church with good things and fun times as well as, you know, spiritual pursuit and all this other stuff. Uh, but yeah, for, from growing up looking at it from the outside, it was very much like a sort of strange thing. And they were always very excited to go to it because, again, it was for like laser tag or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that's a, uh, a big question. I think smart church going people ask is sort of, can you, or should you use the, the allure of sort of secular pleasures to get people, uh, attached to the church? Does the, does the end justify the means? Well, I mean, they, um, it just keeps blowing And up, most right? churches do. And you just keep, like, as the kids get older, you just scale it up. And so that's why Young Life has, like, a its own compound with, like, zip lines and shit. Right, right. Whatever whatever the age group you're trying to attract is interested in, just have that. And that's, you know, the, growing up in a, in a Baptist church, you see how they, a certain churches will kind of use everyone's, secret belief that they are a uh, an undiscovered pop star um, <laughs> you know and and church becomes this sort of parade of like mediocre uh, talent and in, in terms of like singers and musicians well, that's just Nashville, uh, isn't it that's just the whole metropolitan area of nashville yeah yeah it's uh i i i don't go to church if i if i were to go to church if I were to go to church, it would be to a place more like first reformed. I, if the only thing that at all comforts me is the idea of like ritual and, you know, a sort of weekly kind of meditation, not a fucking concert. Yeah. The worship band is like a weirdly, well, I don't know. I guess an American phenomenon. I've only ever heard of it as being an American thing. And I've known people that have like, played in worship bands and stuff like that and it's like lord i lift your name on high i mean they made the whole they made a whole film about that uh i can only imagine song right <laughs> dude you should you should youtube worship fails it is a great thing to watch videos of <laughs> I just, I, the first place my head went was like snake handler getting bitten. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just like people fucking over. up on instruments or like, like, uh, the tableau or like, like the props falling down and stuff. Uh, and everyone always like blames it on the devil. <laughs> the devil made me do it. You know, you, you bring up the devil. Do you want to talk about the, the Norman O'Brown thing a little bit? Cause he's got a bit to say about the devil. Yeah, he does. Uh, basically, the devil is your butthole, is what Norman O'Brown says. Absolutely. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. Like, a, And I'm quoting there. Uh, <laughs> I've got the book here. I'm just going to like find some shit I uh, underlined. Um, so what, what brought this to my attention is when I rewatched First Reformed for the podcast, um, I I was reading Life Against Death, rereading Life Against Death, which is a great book that everyone should read by Norman O'Brown. 
um, it's a sort of Freudian or a psychoanalytical interpretation of everything. Um, but the there's a whole section on Martin Luther in this book, and there's several references, or at least a couple references in First Reformed to Martin Luther. But more specifically, um, the you know the joke that keeps getting told is that Martin Luther wrote. Uh, what's it called? Our God, a mighty fortress or something like that. Um, while he was taking a shit. And I'm assuming that one of the related to that is this story that Norman O'Brown tells about, uh, Martin Luther, that basically his sort of revelation, he claims to have received from God and, and the revelation that started the Protestant reformation uh, was had while on the shitter, quite literally. Mm. Uh, so let me see if I can find it here. We might have to like edit some dead spots out here. Um, Psychoana- uh, let's see. Psychoanalysis, alas, cannot agree that it is of no significance that the religious experience which inaugurated Protestant theology took place in the privy. There is a hidden connection between higher spiritual activity and lower organs of the body. So I think we see that um, very clearly, not only in those references to Martin Luther, but in the sort of metaphor Schrader's working in with the one of the first things we see Toller do and hear him talk about is uh, plunging the toilets or the the, the toilet in the church. Um, and then the metaphor becomes, you know, he's going to commit suicide by Drano. And so he's sort of treating his body like a toilet. Um, anyway, there's all these like weird little connections with like shit. Um, well, they're, they're, I okay. mean, the, the youth group where he's like, he acted as if I had taken a shit on the Bible or, or <laughs> yeah. So here's yeah. This, this section. Let's see. Um, but whatever merit this theory may have is of working hypothesis and dealing with neurotically abnormal individuals when confronted with the anal character as a sociohistorical phenomenon it is useless. For assuming that there is some connection between Protestantism and anality, the orthodox psycho- psychoanalytical dogma can yield no explanatory hypothesis except the notion that Protestantism is the result of a change in toilet training patterns, presumably in the direction of greater strictness. Or assuming that our capitalistic civilization exhibits anal neurotic traits on a mass scale and not just an individual scale, the orthodox psychoanalytical dogma can yield no program of social therapy except a change in toilet training patterns, presumably in the direction of greater permissiveness. Let's just go rapid fire here. The painters paint the devil black and filthy, says Luther. Equally persistent is the association of the devil with a sulfurous or other evil smell. Hence, Dante makes the still point of the turning world round which he passes upward to purgatory, Satan's anus. Uh, let's see where it is here. Um, it's just this. There, there's these these stories of like Luther 
encountering the devil and like throwing these insults of I'll, I'll put you in my ass where you belong. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, here he goes. His other anal weapons employed by Luther in his fight with the devil, my language is here more refined than Luther's, are injunctions to, quote, lick or kiss my posteriors or to, quote, defecate in his pants and hang them around his neck and threats to, quote, defecate in his face or to, quote, throw him into my anus where he belongs. And that last one, he says, is like especially telling because it's a sort of anal retentive, you know, symbolism. Yeah, and 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 Brown, Brown's main idea with all this uh, shit talking is <laughs> is uh, he's connecting it with the death instinct, Freud's uh, Freud's death instinct, um, and so. And so basically the anal character and the devil, which, which, you know, he's sort of arguing is just kind of a religious version of, of, of the things Freud is picking up on. Um, it is consistent with this sort of culture of death. He says, uh, in a, um, uh, in previous ages, life had been a mixture of Eros and Thanatos or, uh, love and death in the Protestant era. Life becomes a pure culture of the death instinct. And I think, I think we see, uh, it reminds me of the, that phrase in, uh, uh, shit, full metal jacket, um, uh, which, uh, the man, I can't think of anything tonight. The guy who kills himself in the latrine, he, uh, keeps repeating that he's in a world of shit. I think Toller is in that world of shit. Um, and I think we see that from the references to the, uh, you know, to Martin Luther writing a, uh, him while taking a shit. Um, I, I think we see it with the references to the toilet and the Drano and, and I think it's related, you know, you just read the passage about the anal character and its roots in the body, um, in that scene where Toller puts that suicide vest on and sort of clicks his heels like the good soldier about to go to war. Um, so yeah, I, I think I don't, I don't really have, you know, like a very sort of neat thesis here, but I, I do feel pretty strongly that this is, um, essential to the, to the film in some way or to the psychology of the film's characters. Um, that, you know, there's this, there's this connection between, um, the religious idea of the devil ain't the anal character and the death instinct. And I think we most clearly see the death instinct in first reformed, um, you know, Toller sort of conceives of liberation and, and authentic living, uh, or, or right living as the ability to blow himself up, up until the end. Yeah. Here's this, uh, in this kind of, I'll read this passage and I'll tell you what it reminded me of. But so we have a uh, given the importance of the devil in Lutheran theology. It is Luther's grossly concrete image of the anal character of the devil that made the privy the appropriate scene for his critical religious experience. And the appropriate comment is not that milk and water piety proposed by 19th century Lutherans and assented to by the Jesuit Grissard that quote, God is everywhere. We are reminded of Luther's acid test of a Christian teacher quote, does he know of death and the devil, or is all sweetness and light? Uh, Protestantism was born in the temple of the devil, and it found God again in the extremist alienation from God. 
Um, and that just the, I don't know the phrasing of that made me think of uh, the Schrader quote. That was a uh, what did he say? It's like something, something about the devil's tools. Oh shit! Uh, yeah, what did he say? I think I texted that to you. Um. Yeah, he said. He said, uh, "This is a loose quote." He said something like, "People use the same techniques to make a film about how great Hitler is as they do to make a film about how awful Hitler is." And then he said, "It's film is often doing God's work with the devil's tools." Um, that really, that sort of goes back to what we're talking about with in talking about church experience and and like trying to attract. Uh, using secular means uh, toward religious ends. Um, so I don't, I don't know. We're getting, uh, I'm getting a little like <laughs> I'm mixing my metaphors here. I, yeah. But it just, it made me think of this idea of Protestantism as this kind of, um, you know, and, and Brown breaks it all down in this kind of anal, anality, anal character sort of way. Um, but you know, this, this kind of idea of Protestantism is very sort of, strict and puritan and um you know there's there is no uh you know everything's predestined just like shut up and live your life and love god (laughs) that kind of thing um and just that comparison with um with with toller's you know inner very sort of inner you know as we talked about this kind of subdued performance from ethan hogg um inner performance of kind of finding God again in the darkest place imaginable or, or you know, however, however it was phrased, uh, it was born in the temple of the devil and it found God again in extremist alienation from God. In the film, that's what Toller sort of represented as, as being so far alienated from this belief in this God that he gets up and, you know, preaches about every Sunday. Mm-hmm. And that's even sort of when he talks to Jeffers and um, he says something like, you get caught up doing this and that, and then before you know it, it's Sunday again. And it shows this sort of routine kind of <laughs> office spacification of of being a priest. Right. And and I think when... Uh, when Schrader talks about God, like, like we said, I, I, don't, I don't think Schrader himself is religious, but I think he can make a a non-condescending religious film if we can understand god as just sort of like the source of meaning in someone's life um and so if you you could sort of secularize this film and just and just have it be about a guy who you know is um confronted with this sort of dark night of the soul and um chooses uh, you know at the end sort of chooses you know light over dark uh, in a very sort of general way of describing it um but uh, you know i i don't think i don't think toller is specifically commenting on religion or a religious institution so much as he is using the familiar character of the of the priest or the pastor um to tell a a more everyman story yeah, which is, uh, well, I don't know. Winterlight is pretty focused on the faith angle, but it also has that same kind of feeling of a 
kind of an everyman ish kind of story. Um, yeah, and I don't I don't think I don't think Bergman was was super religious. I mean, I think it, it recurs in his films, but I don't think he himself was like a Christian. I could be wrong about that, but it, it's my instinct that he's not. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's why in that film you have, well, in First Reform too, you have things like the priest being tempted by a mistress, which is, you know, maybe not the best word for it, but uh, in First Reform, it's, it's sort of, it, it, those relationships, by the way, were, were kind of, to see them back to back like that and see how I thought Toller was really cold in to her in first reform, but then watching Winter Light, it's like, wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. Winter Light is more focused on that relationship. Like that, that's sort yeah. of the, that's sort of the story in, in Winter Light is the, the priest's relationship with this woman. Yeah. Uh, it, it serves the story in first reform, but it's, it's backgrounded a little bit. Yeah. And yeah, pretty, I don't really have anything to add to that. That's pretty much correct. Um, one thing we haven't said about winter light yet that if you haven't seen it, you don't know, uh, it's extremely boring. Yeah. It, it's, it's definitely like hardcore slower. boring. And I did appreciate just because it's something that was unusual. The, the very long monologue that that's probably the best scene with like the letter where he's like reading the letter, but it's her yeah, delivering the letter. Yeah. Um, it's, a uh, if I could remember her Ingrid Thulin, right. Uh, giving the, uh, the monologue of reading the letter, just like straight down camera in a blank room, um, and just acting the shit out of it. Yeah. I, I saw a video where, uh, or maybe it was Bergman's introduction to winter light. And he's, he sort of said he always remembers this movie making it fondly because he said it's the one, if there's one movie where he did not sort of flinch in terms of, uh, catering to any sort of audience or critic or anything, it was just like the movie he wanted to make. It was this one. And, um, I think that's kind of revealing. <laughs> like I said, it's 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 sort of wildly boring, and you, you, you might uh, like it, sincerely you might say it's radically boring, in the same way that that uh, Schrader sort of slows the pace down in First Reformed in order to transcend it. Bergman just sort of slows the pace down. Yes, to to a crawl, basically. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is there anything we haven't haven't got around? One, uh, I got one more thing on my list. I think I noticed this like in between the first time we talked about it and and, and now and and maybe I sort of shoehorned this into another episode because I thought this was an interesting thing about the movie. Um. But but see if you can think through this with me. I want to make sure I've got it right. Does this is just kind of a surface level plot thing? Did Toller inadvertently save Balk's life by counseling Michael? Oh, I see. 
Okay, because you learn that what clued me into this is this again, this is like last year when I watched the movie again. Um, when Toller takes Michael's laptop, he does not get on the internet, he just opens up a file on the desktop. And it's, I think it says Balk Industries, and it's all these, these files about, you know, information about the Balk Industries. And so you got to think, Michael's just gotten out of jail in Canada for some sort of activism. He has a file on his computer with all this information about Balk Industries, the leading polluter in America. And, and he has a suicide vest in the garage. It's like, I'm pretty sure, and 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 we see later in the film that Balk Industries is like in town. It's like very nearby. I think we're supposed to get the impression that Michael was going to do something similar to what Toller ends up planning on doing, uh, which is to blow up the Balk Industries. Um, and so there's that scene in the in the pancake house where Balk is being a jackass and he says to Toller, oh, you counseled him and then he shot himself. Well, I think maybe you need to, you know, look at your own life before you counsel others. Uh, and the irony, if, if my sort of reading is true, is that by counseling Michael um, and um, – you know, by, by Balk's reading, causing him in some way to kill himself, he's actually saved Balk's life by preventing uh, and, and by taking the suicide vest away from Michael. He's saved Balk's life by his counseling, Michael. Is that is there am I missing an element that sort of eliminates that or does that sound plausible i mean not that i can think of i I mean definitely plausible right like it's not it's never like directly indicated what michael would have done but that makes more sense than a lot of other options and it makes me think of uh so you said you'd read recently andreas malm's how to blow up a pipeline yeah Um, yeah i've i've read through about a third of it now um and reading that and then thinking about First Reform and some other things they have this weird like I don't know how to feel about it but something like you know you see First Reform and Toller going in to blow up the church well maybe well this is going to be controversial I guess but it's kind of a letdown when he doesn't you know what I'm saying like there's all this build up and it seems like he's this like avenging angel or whatever and then when that doesn't happen, you know, it's ultimately a good thing. And the ending is very powerful, but there's this kind of lingering thing of like, I really wanted Bach to get blown up. <laughs> you know, that, that, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think we talked about this a little bit last time, how the, you know, Schrader's connection to taxi driver as, you know, people know him as like the dude who wrote taxi driver. Um, and, and the violent ending of taxi driver is sort of, and, and the thematic connections between First Reformed and Taxi Driver are making uh, us prepared for some big violent event, which I, I think you're right. It does make the um, the actual ending more unexpected and maybe more powerful. But yeah, there is that sort of looming uh, anticipation of violence that 
that you know maybe is a letdown on some on some level. I bring that up because it makes me think of a lot of the first part of how to blow up a pipeline is dedicated to this kind of idea that is a really basic idea, but still rings true, which is if all of this is so terrible, then why, why is violence automatically off the table in order to stop it? Like, why is that seen as being the wrong move or as being detrimental or gauche or, you know, whatever it may be. Um, mm-hmm. And so when you watch this and you, you bring up, you know, maybe he saved Balk, Balk's life or at least like Balk Industries operation or whatever. It's like, well, that kind of sucks, right? It's kind of like <laughs> that, that's, that's sort of a, of a defeat. Um, so it, it, it's one of those things, again, where you sort of see in a lot of ways kind of individual kind of fulfillment and things kind of overriding this what would be probably for the greater good uh, maybe not blowing up a church full of people you know many of them probably nothing to do with bulk industries but um, the, the idea that maybe something could have like could have struck a blow against this incredibly dangerous corporate entity but then mm-hmm. it's, it's averted it's kind of like it's kind of a letdown. It's kind of deflating. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I think I think Schrader has a, a, a more ambivalent kind of uh, perspective on on that issue, and and maybe on climate change in general. Something he said in his commentary during the Magical Mystery Tour scene, um which is a very interesting scene and notice that Toller is dressed all in black and Mary is dressed all in white and they're lying on top of each other. It's sort of this yin yang image and they're flying over this pristine landscape and everything's beautiful. And only as Toller's head emerges from this sort of perfect yin yang union, only as his head emerges from it, does the um, the the images that turn to um, sort of degraded and toxic landscapes, um, and it's sort of this this uh, this image of disunion and and breaking from harmony, um, but something. Schrader says, as you're watching that scene over the commentary, he says in a, in a sort of dismissive, uh, almost a disdainful way, he mentions that the scenes you're seeing of, of degraded landscapes are sort of Koyaniskatsi-esque. Mm-hmm. And he, he, the, the, the reason it's disdainful is that he sort of says, oh, this is sort of all Toller can see. Like at, at this moment – in, in his through his eyes this he can only sort of see the world in this sort of koyaniskatsi way he can only see what's wrong with it um what's what's degraded and and bad about it um as if to say that at all times you know there he's not saying it's not true obviously that there are toxic landscapes and degraded landscapes um but it's like Schrader saying that's not all there is. And Schrader's problem is that he can only see those things. Um, 
which which sort of complicates the movie and and really sort of uh um maybe brings a little more credibility to reverend jeffers uh sort of counsel about how he's you know he's always in the always in the garden um and so his advice becomes maybe a little bit more consistent with what schrader himself might advise or counsel toller yeah that that part kind of caught caught my attention too where he the your girl he's in the garden scene and uh schrader says well you know jeffers has the better argument here yeah and, yeah and that, that that struck me as as interesting of well maybe i'm reading into a the opposite or you know at least a, an op- opposing viewpoint to what Schrader was trying to get across here yeah i'm not sure how um you know how you can characterize jeffers the way he does as this obvious in in some in some scenes he's kind of obviously ridiculous where he's the scene where he's filming the commercial and it's like um Jesus never worried. He was never anxious and he doesn't want us to be anxious either. Um, you know, that's just preposterous. Um, but then to, to have him be the character of sort of reasonable counsel is, uh, confusing. Yeah. To say the least, cause you just, <laughs> yeah. he's been set up as this kind of, of clown the whole time. Um, yeah, but a, but a, a kind of, I mean, he's, you have to infer the, the clownish qualities. It's, it's only because of the associations we have. And, and Trader sort of talks about that in the commentary of how, you know, uh, Jeffers has to be kind of restrained or else he very quickly becomes very dismissible. Yeah. Because we're thinking of people like Joel Osteen and and Creflo Dollar and you know that sort of thing. Yeah, which is you know set up in that first scene, which I I don't know if I caught that the first time when we talked about it, but he's talking to some guy and he's got some paper and he's like, "That's for my wife's finances." Yeah, and he sort of shrugs like, uh, you know, I don't know, it's not me. Yeah. <laughs> As yeah, I think the impression we get is that there's uh, maybe some illicit funds going on through the church. Um, but yeah, it was, it was interesting to get that, that, that added depth to, to Jeffers. Whereas before I think I read him mostly as just a kind of direct foil. Um, whereas you have to remember that even if he is, has become this sort of, uh, like you said, like a prosperity gospel guy, um, he still has maybe one or two useful viewpoints when it comes to the religious aspect at least of, mm-hmm. of a worldview of some kind. And when you think about it in a lot of ways, Toller doesn't take his advice necessarily, but by the end of it, Toller's kind of decided I shouldn't always be in the garden. <laughs> you know, I, it, maybe I should step out. Uh, every night. Yeah. And, but at the same time, yeah, I think you're totally right. And at the same time, the, the sort of facts of climate change are not, you know, disputed. Um, and, and really the position Toller's trying to get to is Mary's position. 
you know, she sort of says, I share all of Michael's beliefs, but not his despair. You know, she, she says she was the spiritual one. And so, yeah, that, that's really where Toller's trying to get is a place where he can acknowledge the scientific facts of climate change and even work, uh, like, like Mary does and Michael did as an, you know, as an activist trying to solve these problems, but to maintain uh, a sort of healthy worldview uh, or a spirituality and, and, and one that's not misanthropic. Yeah. And, and also probably chasing Mary's relationship to faith, I guess, where, whereas his is very strained and very, you know, he has to keep a journal about it and all these things. Uh, Mary's is more like reflexive and organic. It seems like where she says, you know, I, I just always kind of gravitated toward the church. If I was out of town, I would find a church and just go and, and pray. And it was just always something that I could turn to, but, it, but not in any sort of, you know, it doesn't really make a show of it. It's not like a huge chunk of her personality necessarily, but it's just something. And it's, and it's not performative. She's yeah. not like performing despair. Yeah. It's just something. Even though weird. she is the pregnant widow, <laughs> you know, <laughs> the, the world's in and, and, and Toller's the one suffering. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's a, an interesting kind of spin on, on the ending. Just by by watching that commentary, which I, I would recommend, it, it was uh, enlightening in some ways. Yeah, I think there's a way to to, to connect it again to Brown to uh, think of of Mary as the sort of uh, Eros and and Michael as Thanatos or death, the death instinct. Um, and Mary's obviously connected to sort of, you know, to life because she's pregnant, but she also has this more sort of integrated spirituality. Uh, and Michael's just a big ball of sweaty despair. Um, and he's all, all brain, no heart, you know, uh, but Mary seems to have, like I said, have those things sort of integrated and as a whole, full, healthy person. Yeah, the the delivery of Michael's lines struck me, uh, maybe more so this time, where it's it's so kind of frantic and not. Well, I mean, the way he states it is not very rhetorically effective. You know, uh, mm-hmm. he uses a lot of rhetorical questions and things like this, but it's very much like, like you said, he's just like this sweaty ball of like frantic energy, um, just spewing out these these facts and these numbers. Um, so, you know, maybe we said that in the first time we talked about this movie, but it's a good, a a good sort of contrast between one way in which you can present realities of climate change versus another way in which you can do that with like Michael. His, his despair is encapsulated by PowerPoint. Yes. Whereas Taylor's has sort of the roundness of. I don't know this this bigger struggle with faith and the world and this dedication to caring for Mary in some way, um, and and his cancer, which is like it, it it's it's weird that that kind of comes to mind second or third because that's really like a major <laughs> like it, right. if you think about 
if you do that thing where you think about what these people's lives are like uh, a couple of months later, he's probably like on the verge of death <laughs> at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't, yeah, you could, we, I, I was listening to a Mark Kermode uh, podcast or YouTube video or something. Uh, and he was posing the question like, <clears throat> what movie are you curious to see a sequel to, but are afraid that it would be fucked up big time? It's like, okay, first reform is a great one. I want to know, you know, what, what could happen to this character. But I also, I also don't want anyone to try that and it doesn't make any sense to do. Yeah. Yeah. Don't do that. It, it, that I don't think we have to worry about that, but people were like putting some ridiculous answers. Uh, somebody said seven. <laughs> what? Yeah. Eight. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't know what you call that. <clears throat> anyway, we, so did we did we land on anything that we wanted to watch for next time? I don't think so. Um, I I think we should explore. I don't want to like set anything hard, you know, set a hard plan or anything. But I've just been curious lately about Tarkovsky. I've somehow never seen a Tarkovsky film. I've seen the remake of Solaris by Soderbergh. But uh, I'm going to do some some digging around in Tarkovsky and see if there's anything remotely relatable. But other than that, man, I'm just I'm totally open to suggestions. So maybe we'll just be on the lookout. Yeah, cool. I mean, we could just like watch Stalker or something. Is that a is that a good one? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. We'll we'll figure something out. Yeah, stay stay tuned. To be uh, check check daily to see if we've updated uh, Twitter or something. <laughs> We're gonna watch all the Tarkovsky movies and read all the books about Tarkovsky and learn Russian before next week. And we'll get back to you. Yeah, buddy. <laughs> <laughs>